Hello, and a very happy new year. I hope Covid, flu and heavy colds gave you a miss over Christmas. I'm still suffering from a cold, so apologies if I sound even duller than usual. And I'm due to start dieting to lose a few pounds. Uh, well, several, actually, given overindulgence, otherwise known as gorging on chocolate and mince pies. The BBC is continuing its slimming down as more programmes slip out of its schedules. Presenter Clive Myrie tweeted on Monday, ahead of the merger between the BBC News Channel and BBC World News, planned for April... End of an era tonight, as the last edition of the papers goes out on the BBC News Channel. At one stage, this programme had more viewers than Newsnight, and was regularly the most watched show on the channel by a country mile. Former BBC Newsnight culture correspondent Stephen Smith responded like this. Sorry about job losses facing journos at the News Channel, Clive. Will the well-upholstered tiers of BBC News managers also be thinned out? Though more viewers than Newsnight is a bit like saying lower rainfall than Manchester. Ouch. The majority of tweets reflected unhappiness about these changes. Every night I have watched the papers for years now. It was the best news show. Personable, like conversing with friends, whilst also giving valuable differing views on hot topic subjects. I've always been happy to pay my licence fee, but when this is cut, and local radio... It's not okay. Unlike most comments here, I think this is a sound move. Newspapers are becoming less relevant as each year passes, with ever lower circulations. Many of them peddle rubbish and don't deserve a platform on TV. By 2028, I'd expect half the national titles to not exist in print form. This week also saw my opinion piece in The Guardian, which argues for the end of these cuts until the BBC articulates its vision, which must have some input from us, the licence fee payers. You can find a link to this article in the description of this programme. But it's not just the BBC that's in trouble. The public service broadcasting system is undoubtedly facing an existential threat. So says Sir Peter Basiljet. He's been responsible for shows such as Big Brother, Changing Rooms and Ready Steady Cook and in September he stepped down as chair of ITV. I spoke to him just before Christmas, and before the government's decision not to push ahead with the privatisation of Channel 4. I began by asking him, what is public service broadcasting? How do you define it? And why are we now talking about public service media? Yes, Ofcom has suggested we rename it public service media for the actually intelligent reason that the word broadcasting is somewhat otios now because the nature of distribution of television entertainment in the future is more a one-to-one streaming activity to an individual viewer rather than broadcasting to a mass audience. Of course, the mass audience still exists and will for a few years, so they're calling it public service media. And uh, the existential threat is, well, let me give you an example uh, which best exemplifies it. The domestic broadcasters whose future lies in streaming services, have to distribute those streaming services in the future on the internet. And on the internet, that is dominated by a small number of foreign-owned companies. Uh, So ITVX, which launched a month ago, has to do distribution deals with more than 30 companies and platforms, everything from Xbox to Samsung and LG TV, connected TVs, to Apple, to Amazon, and so on. 
and Sky and Virgin as well, of course. And all of those uh, foreign-owned companies uh, have a lot of power. So if they decide that they want a share of your advertising revenue, in the case of ITV, or that they don't want to share the data of the people viewing, in the case of BBC and ITV and Channel 4 and Channel 5, uh, you're in a very poor place. So this is a crucial loss of power, in a sense, by the broadcasters. It's rather like saying you once could sell directly to the public and now you've got to sell via the equivalent of Tesco or Waitrose or whatever. And in that negotiation, you have much less power than you might have. Presumably also when you're trying to deal with a distributor that has its own interests, broadcasting interests, they might say, oh, well, we're not going to put you high up, are we, on our... uh, on our list, so we're going to increase FEs. I mean, it just is a there's a power imbalance there. Now, it's not actually completely new in principle because the 2003 Communications Act, which train spotters like me are familiar with, actually said in the world of Sky and Virgin, it was in the public interest to put BBC One and Two in the slots one and two on the electronic programme guide and to put ITV in slot three and so on. So That act, in the age when Sky and Virgin were the new kids on the block, guaranteed prominence, that was the idea, to the public service broadcasters for the very good reason that they deliver in a number of ways public good. Now, that principle now needs updating. So we need prominence for the internet age so that everybody from Amazon, Apple, Sky, Virgin, and you'll find all of these companies are mostly American-owned, have to give prominence. And we've suggested also access in the first place. In other words, they've got to take the public service media uh, services. They've got to give it prominence so people can find it. And they've got to give fair value for the value of the content being on the platform. And the good news is that there was a earlier uh, this year, we're still in um, 2022 as we record this, There was a media white paper which said, yes, let's do access, prominence and fair value in a media bill. Unfortunately, that same white paper had the privatisation of Channel 4 in it, which caused an enormous amount of heat and got all the debate around it. And everybody ignored the prominence issue. Indeed, if that Channel 4 idea remained in the white paper, the House of Lords would try to maul the bill and delay the whole thing. So my personal view right now, whatever the rights and wrongs of the Channel 4 privatisation issue is, you need to take the Channel 4 out of it and get that legislation through. And it's particularly important for ITV because they are meant to apply in 2023 for a new 10-year licence. But how can they apply for a new 10-year public service media licence if they don't know what the terms are? So are you saying, and it's not a threat, in your view it'll just be a fact, that if that doesn't happen, ITV could cease to be a public service broadcaster? ITV has a number of options, Okay, I know it wants to remain a public service broadcaster or public service media company, and it treasures the regional and national news and all the other things it does. But it is one of its options. You know, it's a healthy company. It's got a very strong international production company. It's got strong cash flows, low debt. And so it has a number of options. And one of those options could be not being a PSM. If the government decides to to legislate in the way you hope, is it within their power to make these international companies obey? Because you think, hold on, this is just this country. How can they make this stick when they're broadcasting from around the world? So what levers does the British government have to make foreign-owned companies obey the rules? The Internet and the World Wide Web 
is a wonderfully beneficial thing, but we've learned in the last few years it's also got many, many disbenefits. In fact, it is a massive threat to civil society. So the great challenge facing liberal democracies is how you regulate the internet. This is a small subset of it. All across the liberal democracies of the West, they are struggling with how to regulate the internet in the interests of preserving civil society. And a small subset of that is this regulation of uh, public service media. There are other things like the bill that the British government is proposing on the way in which social media is a danger, the uh, the harms and offences caused by social media. So uh, it is possible for individual countries to legislate, but not easy to get it to stick. But in the case of prominence, you can. And I mean, indeed, in France, they're regulating other ways, like they're thinking of regulating, saying that companies like Netflix and Amazon have got to run 50% of locally produced content. So there are ways of doing this. It is possible. So why does public service media matter so much now? We all, you know, we've had 100 years of the BBC. We look back in it, we look at its contribution, and we think it's pretty, pretty wonderful on the whole. But do we need a redefinition of what public service media are in the 21st century. You've defined it as programmes essentially made for us, about us, by us. Does that hold now? One of the things that distresses me about the debate around public service media is that too many people reference the past. We can only justify it, and I think that's the sense of your question, and it's absolutely a good question. We can only justify public service media and its preserving it and regulating it and enabling it on new platforms if it delivers for the 21st century. And yes, I firmly believe that it is one of the things we need in the 21st century. In the internet era of madness, rumour, gossip, paranoia, the Tower of Babel that represents the internet, we need a gold standard of news, trusted and reliable news for our democracy. Democracy depends on informed citizenry. We do need to get the benefit of programmes made by us, for us, about us, cultural benefit of that, because whether it's daytime chat shows or domestic dramas or soap operas, these are the programmes that still explore all the things we care about in society that explore and develop our values. That is a national conversation we have. And thirdly, and this is relatively new to people who may not have recognised this uh, argument 20 years ago, the creative industries represent around 6% of the GVA, uh, of the British economy. They employ 2.3 million people. They export more than £50 billion uh, pounds a year. They're a very, very important and growing part of our economy. And the uh, screen industries is one-fifth of those creative industries. And, of course, a lot of our soft power around the world depends on the output. So in all sorts of ways, it's really relevant to the 21st century. But it's through that lens we ought to justify it. But it's not articulated very clearly, is it, this new or the concept of how public service broadcasting or public service media can face the next 100 years. I mean, I was very struck in the House of Lords debate on Friday when Baroness Stowell, who'd worked for the BBC as a Conservative peer, she said, I remain unclear what the BBC wants to be beyond being a significant player in the global media. What will it do more of, continue to do, stop doing? And again, Baroness Harding said, no investment proposal should be approved without a compelling long-term vision and plan. I must say, I have not seen that long-term compelling vision and plan from the BBC. I've great admiration for the present Director-General and admire the way he and, I presume, the Chairman have put the BBC on a very firm business footing. But where's the vision? 
Do you know what the vision is? Their vision is? Yes, I do, I think. I think you're being a bit harsh. Well, I'm only quoting noble baronesses. I think the question's a bit harsh, because I think at various times Tim Davy has articulated that. His most recent speech actually was more about distribution in the internet era, which was an important subject to address. Yeah, but Peter, hold on a second. We've got these two very senior and experienced peers saying they don't see a long-term vision. So have they not been reading the speeches of Tim Davy? Well, I... Look, I actually, Tina Stoll has done really good work on the creative industries in general and is a very, very valuable member of the House of Lords. And um, I've dealt with Dido Harding as well, and uh, she is an intelligent observer of the scene. But I could point, not off the top of my head, but I have read various speeches of, that Tim Davies given in the last 18 months that have reflected on some of the things I just said about the value of public service broadcasting in the 21st century. I have seen those words come from his lips. Uh, see, some people think what's going on in the BBC is the classic BBC of salami slicing, not wishing to face the most difficult issues about what it should do more of and what it should do less of, but salami slicing. And a lot of those slices going on, or all of it going on, without a public consultation. So, for example, the cuts in local radio or you could say the cuts in the World Service, although there'd been some negotiation with government. So when you're actually at the point at which you may be taking services away for people, you have to say, is there no consultation? Have they no rights? I mean, if it was a publicly quoted company, you could go to a shareholders meeting and, OK, you could register a question or complain or whatever. If it's a party, a Labour Party, Conservative Party, it's in the manifesto, you can challenge it, you can ask questions. But the BBC is now starting to reduce services without, it seems to me, any significant form of consultation, all in the pursuit of its survival as a business model. Where's the democratic consultation going to happen? Well, we could all do with having a richer and more serious debate about the BBC. And yes, I would include the people at the BBC, but I wouldn't single them out. So, for instance, if you took the debates in Parliament about the BBC over the last 18 months, you'd think the only issue about the BBC was how it's funded. And it seems to me, before you debate how it's funded, you need to discuss why you want it. And I've just outlined why I would want it. You've outlined it very passionately in terms of a new service, but what about things like children's programmes as well? Of the arts, of which you chair the Arts Council, the role of classical music, the BBC orchestras, all of these things surely need to be examined and understood, and one suspects they're not properly understood, frankly, in parts of Parliament. In my defence, Roger, and it's always worth speaking in one's defence, since no-one else will, I did speak... <laughs> I did speak I did speak beyond the ambit of the news. I talked about the national conversation, the cultural value of the output, programmes for us, about us, and I talked about the economic value in the creative industry. So I gave a broader picture to you. You did indeed. I apologise for that. Accepted. <laughs> but you're, you're making a very legitimate point. The debate about the BBC has to be about why we want it and what we want from it before we discuss how we fund it. And that does need to be led by the BBC. They have my sympathy because they are on a deck, if not burning, it is smouldering because the value of the licence fee has diminished so strongly, particularly in this time of very high inflation. And inflation, by the way, in the production sector is even higher than it is in the country at large. They are fighting very hard to make sure that they are still operating in a, in a solvent way. So you're saying, where's the consultation around... To what I'm saying is, for the first time almost, the BBC is in the business of reducing 
cutting services, reducing the scale of what it does. And if that's going to happen, there needs to be a proper debate. Otherwise, you have people, license fee payers, particularly older people I'm thinking of now, paying for something and seeing some of the things they want to pay for taken away from them and being left for some of the things they don't want to pay for, but they have to. And in the end, that's not doable, is it? There has to be a form of democratic consent. But how you do that, how you get that debate going, is extremely difficult. Well, so it's a very fair point you make. And nobody knows more about the views of the uh, the viewer and listener than you do, because you've curated them for some years brilliantly on Radio 4. And uh, you make a very fair point. So all I would say is the BBC has my sympathy and they do need to make changes right away. Otherwise, they're going to be really in the red. So they do need to make changes quite quickly. But the proper process towards the licence renewal in, I think, five or six years time is first, what sort of BBC should there be? And let everybody say what sort of BBC they want including leading a debate saying why we need public service media led by the BBC in the 21st century. And then you get round to the discussion about funding. At the moment, we have the cart before the horse. So, yes, I'm sure the BBC could do more to lead that debate in the right way. Yeah, well, you must have sympathy because I think its spending power has gone down at least 30% in real terms in the last 10 years, and it must be more than that in inflation. But just, by the way, in parenthesis, before I want to ask something about Channel 4... It's very intriguing, isn't it, what's happening to those streaming services? I mean, I noticed that Netflix, for example, its value of the company is down on the year 52%. Discovery is down 63%. Paramount Global is down 42%. According to the Financial Times, media groups shed $500 billion in value in the last year. So have we, in a way, seen a high watermark of those streaming companies or not? In the well-worn phrase, shares can go down as well as up. <laughs> We're actually, what the article you're quoting, which is in the Financial Times this morning, did not point out was that there's a wider collapse in tech stocks and Netflix and Amazon are seen as tech stocks. And so it isn't just about media as it happens. But no, uh, the fundamentals are that the world is moving towards the distribution of television entertainment and news and factual on the internet. And that's not going to change. The fact that Netflix spent massive sums of money to break the model and had first mover advantage but never made a profit and now is being required by shareholders to make a profit at a time when all tech stocks are dropping doesn't change the fundamentals of the technology. Can I ask you now about Channel 4, and not specifically about privatisation, but about whether it needs, after 40 years now, again, to re-examine what its public service role is. I mean, when it started, as you well know, because you were a producer at that, that time, I think, within the BBC and, and about to leave, there was a pent-up sense of among producers that they wanted to work in a different way. So there was that driving thing. There was also a sense that there were minorities in this country which were not being properly catered for by the major broadcasters. Then there was the business view, I think, of the Thatcher government, uh, which was slightly different. So you had a number of things came together with this extraordinary creation of Channel 4. But now we've moved on 40 years very significantly. A lot of those minorities that they had to deal with are in the mainstream, if you like, now. Does Channel 4 need to rethink its purpose? Not just question whether it's privatised or not, but rethink its purpose. 
Two of the things that Channel 4 was most famous for were providing an alternative voice, sort of non-mainstream voices you didn't tend to hear elsewhere. And secondly, the voice of youth. It can still do the former very easily, and I think still does to some extent, to find views, attitudes that you don't find elsewhere. But the voice of youth, yes, it gets slightly better demographic in 16 to 34 year olds than ITV or BBC. But in the age of TikTok and YouTube, to say you're the voice of youth is ludicrous. In fact, the average age of Channel 4's viewer is somewhere in the 50s. And so they have lost that bit. And therefore, that is a bit of an existential challenge for them. But I think the answer for them lies outside London. In their last ditch attempt to stave off a privatisation, they offered to move their headquarters out of London to Nadine Doris. And that is a box that can't be closed again. And in fact, I think they might well have done it earlier than they did. And so I would expect, I don't necessarily predict, but I would think it was likely that that, will, that idea will be pursued and that they will become an outside London broadcasting organisation. Now, that's really important because London and the South East and the voice of London and the South East still dominates Britain and the airwaves. And that is a really interesting, a distinct brand and activity. And it's particularly important. I mentioned earlier democracy, culture and creative economy. They're now co-presenting their news from Leeds. So you're getting more regional voices in their news than you did previously, which is a good thing. But for the creative economy, the creative industries rely very much on clusters. And clusters are a brilliant way of developing economic growth to parts of the country that have not had it up to now. And the fact that Channel 4 is putting resources and commissions and the like into Glasgow, Bristol, but particularly Leeds, and if that was amplified by them leaving London altogether, they could provide a really interesting cultural and economic contribution, which would, I think, greatly sharpen their brand. And would make the question of privatisation a less urgent one in many people's view? Yes, look, there are arguments for and against privatisation. And let me just unpack that quickly. By the way, what I'm about to say is not an argument for Channel 4 privatisation. It's an argument for consolidation. My personal belief is that in the era we were discussing earlier of internet giants owning the means of distribution with their own very strong services. So Amazon, Apple, Sky, Comcast, they all have their own programme production and distribution, as well as purporting to be platforms distributing other people's content. In that era, in the era of streaming, to succeed, you need to succeed as a streamer to have enough firepower to commission lots of new programmes, because that's how you get new people to your streaming channel, whether it's free viewing, ad supported, or whether it's subscription, and enough programmes in your archive, in your catalogue, to keep viewers enjoying your service. Now, I don't believe that Channel 4, Channel 5, ITV and BBC, with their, used to be called catch-up services, now called streaming services, that is iPlayer, ITVX, and all four and so on. Uh, I don't believe they can survive 10, 20 years into the future 
without consolidation. Now, in ITV's case, I'm not saying it's an existential threat to them, because as I said earlier, they can choose not to be a PSB. They've got lots of avenues they can go down. But if you want to preserve the value of PSM, public service media, I think there needs to be consolidation, at least if not of the whole companies, at least of their streaming services. And so I think that will come, but it will require enormous changes to the competition regimes. And I think we're nowhere near it. And I don't think we're even anywhere near having the debate. But in my view, that's why there are arguments for the privatisation of Channel 4. But you don't necessarily need to privatise companies. You can merge some of their assets or whatever. But consolidation is necessary. And finally, Peter, I wanted to ask about a question which slightly baffles me, which is impartiality. You were, I think, a news trainee in the BBC. It was dinned into you what impartiality needs to be. It's a constant battle to be fought. And, of course, particularly now, younger generations uh, brought up on TikTok and elsewhere maybe need to to be taught, as it were, more frequently. But there's an obsession in the Conservative Party in particular about the BBC not being impartial. And the Director-General and the Chairman, I think, have gone out of their way to say, yeah, we are trying to deal with problems. Do you think impartiality is a greater problem now than it was in the BBC 20 or 30 years ago? It's a problem. It always will be. But is it a more difficult problem now? No, it's not a more difficult problem, but it's always a problem. Uh, There are two sorts of impartiality. There's the impartiality that says you don't make a specific broadcast on a specific day in a party political way. But there's the broader issue of impartiality. And by the way, on that first one, I think the BBC passes very easily, whatever politicians may think. On the second one, which very much came to the fore during the Brexit referendum, it's that, is there a groupthink? Is there a liberal groupthink? Is there a southeastern groupthink? That's a more will-o'-the-wisp thing. It's a real issue And I think that's the thing that the BBC rightly says it's trying to address, that all voices are heard and that there isn't a groupthink. As to Conservatives who think the BBC is not impartial and are hostile to it, this is certainly not new. So, one, Harold Wilson was just as hostile to the BBC as the current Conservatives in in the 1960s. And what I would suggest to you is, as political parties been in power a long time, And as its problems mount, and that's certainly the trend at the moment, this year has been quite dramatic, they get more and more uh, inclined to shoot the messenger. And that's the trend you're seeing at the moment. Finally on this, the the, the thing that worries me is that that the broadcasters lose confidence. Robin Day used to say, the old political interviewer, Parliament should outline the parameters of debate and we should reflect the debate within Parliament. But what happens if you as a broadcaster think there are a whole range of things that are not being discussed? If you look at the Brexit debate, and I don't want to go into whether it was biased one way or another, but what was missing was clearly an examination of the future. If we leave, what do people want? What sort of country do we want in the future? It's been missing in the Scottish debates, which have simply been about whether Scotland should be independent or not, not what sort of Scotland it should be. It was missing in dealing with Ireland. Now, You want the broadcasters ultimately to have the self-confidence to say this issue is vitally important. It is not being dealt adequately within Parliament for a variety of reasons. We must have the confidence to go and outline and examine this issue. Health actually would be a good example where we perhaps need that. That's the thing that most worries me, the confidence of journalists to say, "Okay, 
the politicians weren't like this, but this genuinely is in the public interest. You could almost be arguing for Bring Back John Burton Weekend World, where we unpack an issue and write the script in advance. I wouldn't put John Burton in charge of all the journalism, but I would put him in charge of the analysis. <laughs> but let me make one more point, Roger, and it's something I just want to touch on, the hostility between some politicians and the BBC. There has grown up, probably from the Paxman era, this idea that all politicians are hucksters. You must stop them talking and selling you a line and interrupt them at all on all occasions. And proper examination of issues becomes quite difficult. And there's a lot of that on the airwaves. And as politics has got more frenzied this year, it's become more frenzied on the airwaves. And so I'd just like to recommend to you and your listeners one person who I think shows another way. Evan Davis, presenter of the PM programme on Radio 4 every afternoon at five o'clock, doesn't interrupt, never raises his voice, manages to have extremely interesting interviews with politicians of all hue, and I wish there were more of him. Well, I'll join you in that. Uh, Sir Peter Basiljet, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. And for a New Year's resolution, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please support it by subscribing for just £1.99 per month. You'll find the link to subscribe on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions, uh, please do, on Twitter by using at bbroger or on Mastodon using at rogerbolton at mastodonapp.uk. Or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>